1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome
2: to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers and Ron Gross. Good to see you guys. Hey, Chris. We've got some hot IPOs and some tech companies under fire. We will dip into the Fool mailbag, and as always, we'll share a few stock ideas to put on your watch list. But we begin this week with the big macro, and that means the government shutdown. The government has been shut down. Who knows, Charlie, by the time this makes air, maybe they'll have their act together and the government will be back up. The market didn't really react in a negative way, but what is looming out there for investors is the October 17th deadline to raise the debt ceiling. Where do you think we are right now? Yeah, Chris, that's really a a much bigger deal than the
1: government shutdown, uh, not to make light of anyone who is actually caught up in that situation, which is uh, not great if you're relying on that. Um, So what is going on here is by law, the government can only spend money if there are sufficient funds. Where do they get the money? They get it from tax receipts and by borrowing. And the amount of money that the Treasury can borrow to pay the bills is set by Congress. Uh, Typically, raising that debt limit is only a formality. It's occurred 60-something times in the past few decades. It's typically not a big deal. Uh, and really, this is important, because every year when Congress sets the budget, they are agreeing to pay these obligations, except uh, the last two times around, they did not agree to actually let the Treasury raise the money to do it. Uh, and so, you know, typically, we tend to be company-focused investors here. But when this happened in 2011, the S&P fell by 16% in one month, nice. and Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. Uh, so I don't think anyone wants to repeat what happened two years ago, uh, but we'll see if common sense prevails.
2: Yeah, Ron, we've talked before, it's, 2013's been a great year for the market in general, great year for investors. That, To Charlie's point, that really could come to an end if uh, they don't get this right.
3: Yeah, I think it would be so catastrophic from a market perspective, from an economic perspective. It would probably bring us back into a recession, if not worse. Treasuries would plunge, interest rates would uh, would rise, it would reverberate around the globe. Um, one would think that our legislators will come to their senses and, and compromise or someone will give in, um, so that doesn't occur. And if I'm betting possible versus probable, I'm saying uh, we'll be okay, and it's not going to go down the road of, of a catastrophe.
2: But Jason, if you're taking the other side of the bet and you think that we are going to have a repeat of 2011, what do you do as an investor? Do you take a little money off the table here?
0: I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think that Ron's probably right, and you look at the credit default swap activity. I think that indicates as well that the market. How would one thinks, look at the credit to swap <laughs> activity? Just uh, Google it. Right? Okay. Yeah. but uh, it does seem like at least the market for now is is agreeing that this will be resolved, but. You know, I mean, it it makes a lot of sense when when you look at these headline events, and you know, the market hates uncertainty. But it seems like one thing is certain: we're going to run into these types of headline events all the time, and and it's just impossible to predict how they're going how they're going to play out in the market short short term uh, speaking. But I think that really making sure that you always have some uh, cash available in a watch list that that's really how I try to play this out. I mean, I don't I don't really look at uh, a 1% or a 2 or 3% drop in a particular stock, like a reason to go out and just buy, buy, buy. Uh, if you see some massive correction like we talked about before, then that's nice to be able to take advantage of it. But really, it shouldn't change your long-term goals, your long-term reasons for investing in a company to begin with. If you're investing in a company and part of the reason is because of little headline events like this, then you need to reassess why you invested in that company to begin with. I do agree with that, I think um, periodically though it 's
3: good to go through your portfolio and see am I still in this company because my thesis makes sense is valuation makes sense? am I allocated correctly with the market hitting all time highs? This is as good a time as any to do so, and there are probably companies like we just did this million dollar portfolio. That you maybe want to take some profits on, pair back some allocation on. There might be some companies you want to increase, but it's good to periodically, especially in times like these, take a look at your portfolio. Kind of Charles.
0: like a spring cleaning, I guess. There
2: <laughs> Charlie, I'll just wrap up with you. Are you uh, To Ron's point, are you doing that type of exercise? Are you going through and looking? And I, I don't want to say you're rooting for uh, an event to cause one of your stocks to drop. 10 20% so you can buy more, but uh, are you going through that as well?
1: Oh, yes, of course. Uh, I do have cash on the side, uh, just like Jason mentioned, but I think one thing you could also look at is your allocations, and not just with stocks, but with bonds as well. Uh, the last time this debt crisis came to pass in 2011, actually uh, U.S.
2: government Treasury ETFs performed well while stocks were falling, uh, so, you know, balance things out. Twitter is not public yet, but its filing to go public is. Twitter hopes to raise up to a billion dollars with its IPO, Which could come as early as November. Jason,
0: you've had a chance to look over the S-1 filing now that it's public. What caught your eye? Well, it was a wonderful evening last night, reading <laughs> SEC documents. And, and actually, it was really kind of cool. I mean, this is there's a lot of things in there. You know, learned a lot about the company. Uh, I think, first and foremost, it's just understanding the market opportunity that's out there for Twitter uh, and how they actually do make their money. I mean, they make their money from advertising, plain and simple. And it's just through selling these promoted tweets and, and things like that that they do it. Uh, of course, the the immediate comparison, the questions that come up, uh, compare it to Facebook right and, and i mean i think that's a fair comparison at least to a degree so i did do some uh digging there as far as the numbers go and if you look at one of the metrics they they really help to gauge success is the uh their monthly active users and revenue you know per monthly active user and just based on the first half of 2013 there is a disparity there where you see uh twitter brings in about a dollar and 18 cents uh revenue per uh per monthly active user. For Facebook, that number is $2.48. So, there is a significant gap there. Now, Facebook obviously has about five times the registered user base. Right. So, a tremendous audience, and, and they've been in the public markets a little bit longer. I think that Twitter is going to face you know, The, the initial hurdle for them is going to be proving their value. And, and I think that if they can do that uh, that would be really the the key, is is to show that the data that they have is relevant to advertisers and bringing those advertisers in the, in the door, uh, really, to, to get those things out in front of eyeballs.
2: Uh, it was already quite a week for IPOs. Potbellies went public on Friday. Shares of the sandwich shop rose more than 130% on its first day of trading. <laughs> wow, Ron, there are some people out there, some analysts, saying, hey, this is the next Chipotle. Is it? <laughs> That seems uh, that's that seems wonderful for the potbelly people. If it, if I, I it don't actually think is, so
3: I think at the end of the day, it is just a sandwich shop. Now they, it's it's a good sandwich shop. They do a good job. They get the idea is to get people in and out relatively quickly through their kind of conveyor belt business model, which I think works well, and it has a nice look and feel to it. Um, I think it's a growing company. It's not an, uh, The growth is not extreme. It's not going to be one of those high flyers. They're going to grow store-based by, they say, about 10% per year. Um, so I think the IPO is actually pretty reasonably priced, probably around 14, 15 times earnings, um, which is not lofty. Now we're at 40 times earnings yeah. after after that pop. Um, A couple things I don't like about the IPO. Some insiders sold shares into the IPO. I hate to see that. They're using a big chunk of the proceeds to pay a dividend to former uh, insiders, uh, current shareholders. Don't love to see that. I like proceeds um, being used to grow the business. Um, So, a grower, not extreme, don't like use of proceeds. But I like their sandwiches. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they make a nice milkshake, too. Uh, Jason, earlier in the week, we saw some other names that I think people will recognize. Remax, going public, their shares popping on opening day. And Burlington Stores, the parent company of Burlington Coat Factory, shares up more than
0: 40% their opening day. Yeah, that was pretty impressive, actually. Burlington operates in this space that it probably doesn't get a whole lot of love uh, you know, from the press and whatnot. I think uh, the off-price apparel Market is is not the sexiest industry in the world, but they basically take all these sort of you know either canceled lines or or surpluses, and they are able to just sell them at at rock bottom prices. So it's more than just coats; it's it's uh, all sorts of apparel. And you know, I I I looked at this company and compared it to some of its competitors to get a better idea of sort of the valuation perspective. And if you look at something like a TJ Maxx or a Ross, which these guys compete with, their stocks trade at an EV to EBITDA multiple of around ten, ten and a half. When when Burlington went public. Uh, that first day, that valuation was implied at about six and a half times. So it, it was, on paper at least, significantly cheaper. Uh, so it didn't surprise me to see that pop. And I do think that there is a lot of runway for this company as far as growth goes. They can grow that store base, but it's also worth knowing they have about $1.6 billion in debt on the balance sheet, so it's not spotless.
2: Uh, It's worth pointing out that the hidden winner this week was actually Tweeter Home Entertainment, the consumer electronics retailer that went bankrupt in 2007. It is a penny stock, but when Twitter goes public, Twitter's ticker symbol is going to be TWTR. Tweeter Home Entertainment is TWTR. Q, And on Friday, shares rose over 1,000% of this penny stock as some mistaken investors thought they were buying shares of Twitter. Oops, awesome. There's a little lesson to be learned there. Coming up, we will dip into the Fool mailbag and give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Hey, it's Chris here. Is your business protected from data loss? If it isn't, it should be. Join the 100,000 businesses who trust Mosey to protect their critical business files. Mosi automatically backs up your critical files to world-class data centers with maximum security. It's easy to set up and use. It saves you time and costs up to 80% less than other solutions. Mosey is the most trusted name in cloud backup. So visit Mosey.com. Use the promo code FOOL to save 10% on your initial purchase. That's M-O-Z-Y ycom that As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Charlie Travers, and Ron Gross. Guys, we have talked before about Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer, who will be stepping down in the next 12 months. This week, Reuters reported that three of Microsoft's biggest shareholders are pushing for Bill Gates to step down as chairman. Uh, Charlie, these three unnamed individuals, say what you want about Carl Icahn. At least he puts his name on it when when he's making these types of calls. But three unnamed shareholders collectively own about 5% of the stake. Are they right to push for Gates to step down as chairman? I actually hadn't considered that possibility uh, until
1: I saw this report. But now that I have had some time to think about it, I think it's actually a good idea for both Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer to step down and just give the company uh, an entirely new, fresh start. Um, And I say that as a big admirer of Bill Gates. I think he's brilliant. And if you listen to how he talks about his philanthropic efforts, uh, he's a visionary. I mean, he's a creative guy for solving problems. But that doesn't mean he's necessarily the right person to serve as chairman of Microsoft. Microsoft anymore, especially as they're bringing in a new CEO who might want to take the company in a new direction. And I think having the very big shadow of Bill Gates standing there while you're trying to make those changes uh, is a daunting prospect. And and so I do agree. I think he should just gracefully step aside. He's selling 20 million shares a quarter. And by 2018, he wouldn't even be a shareholder anymore. So I think it probably is time to step aside.
2: you agree with that, Ron?
3: Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't sure sure which way Charlie would go with that. I think what he said makes good sense. I think if I was a board member, I really would want to know how much time he's devoting to Microsoft versus his philanthropic duties. Is he really and truly engaged? Because especially now, as Microsoft switches gears and changes strategies, you need a highly engaged chairman, especially when the CEO is going to be brand new. So if, if he's not as committed, perhaps, as he used to be, which he probably isn't, It might be a good idea.
2: But do you think he should be on long enough to at least have a say in who the next CEO is going to be? I would like to see him stay on the board regardless if he's chairman or not. 2013 has been a fantastic year for Samsung, as the company surged past Apple as the world's biggest smartphone seller. But the great 2013 may have ended this week. David Pogue, the technology columnist for the New York Times, wrote a scathing review of Samsung's smartwatch, the Galaxy Gear. There's a lot to chew on, Jason, but I think the money line is when Pogue wrote, nobody
0: will buy this watch and nobody should. (laughs) It's amazing how quickly the tide turns. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when we were looking at Samsung and saying, "Wow, these guys are just taking the market by storm." A great phone. It's going to be a smartwatch that's going to complement this great phone. And Apple's in all sorts of trouble. And and I mean, I think that you know that's obviously proven to be uh, hyperbole. If anything else, I mean, it, I know at least one radio show where I went on air and I said, <laughs> I, I, "I just I voiced my disdain, my my disbelief in the smartwatch." And I stand by that statement. I just don't think. I mean, I, I just don't see what it does that your phone doesn't do yet. And so, I think you have a lot of hurdles, really, to overcome there. And I'm still not totally convinced yet that Apple didn't just float this idea of iWatch out there just to force Samsung's hand in getting a smartwatch on the market first and making them look like idiots, because they obviously do.
2: You can always drop us an email. Radio at com is our email address. Got an email from Tom Smith in Antioch, California. He writes, After listening to the show in mid-2011 and hearing the discussion about lumber liquidators, I did my own research and bought the stock at $16.67. It is now over $100 a share. I've never had such a big winner in such a short period of time. I'm not sure whether it's time to sell, though. What do you guys think, and what are some tips on making that evaluation for my other holdings. Thanks, and Fool on." Uh, congrats, first of all, I Absolutely. guess, Rod, in order for well Tom. Done. Always nice to see that. Uh, and that is, uh, as our producer, Matt Greer would say, that's a high-class problem to have. <laughs> that My st- stock has shot up that <laughs> much. Uh, but at its core, the, uh, a universal question for investors, when do I sell? Yeah, we share
3: that um, good problem. We're up maybe four or 500% on our Lumber Liquidators position. And what we've done is we've sold into the strength in little pieces as the stock has moved up and has kind of bumped up against our valuation estimates um, it actually has exceeded even uh, you know what we thought they could do um, in terms of revenue growth same store sales growth gross margins um, so our models tended to tend to be conservative in this case um, now we are over hundred dollars a share as you say I would say if we get to one hundred and twenty dollars then it's really optimistic. There's a lot of goodness baked in yep. there. There's 300 stores now. They say they can get to 600 um, $120 would reflect a lot of good things happening, and that's where I would probably look to maybe exit. So when you have a stock that's gone up three-
1: or five-fold, and maybe it was a small position to start, but then it gets really big, which is great to have, um, less business-focused and more about managing your emotions. If it is such a large part of your portfolio where you're watching that stock every day and you're worried about all the little ups and downs, that might be a sign you need to take some money off the table and get it back in check a little bit.
2: The sleep factor. Absolutely. Always important. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up this segment. Maybe we can provide a few uh, stock ideas for Tom to put on his watch watch list. And we'll bring in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass. What's on your uh, radar this week, Ron?
3: I got Costco reports uh, next week. We actually, um, this week, recommended investors take some money off of the table and reduce their allocation to Costco because it has had such a nice run and at $115 a share. As with Lumber Liquidators, we think a lot of uh, the goodness is baked in. But it is such a beloved company by me and really all of fooldom that I would love the opportunity to, to, to even go back in again, it'll, it'll take a larger stake at some point. So I'll
2: always be watching it very closely. Steve, question for Ron about Costco.
1: Can Costco basically stop growing? Just say, we're not going to get involved in internet stuff. We're going to run brick and mortar stores. And we're just going to keep the locations we have and keep chugging along.
3: Um, they could. Um, I think uh, they will be able to consistently raise membership fees going forward, which kind of falls to the bottom line. So you have some built in growth there every now and then. Um, but they do only have 625 stores now. They can get to 1,100 at some point um, internationally. So there's still plenty of growth left in their future, um, even uh, without the internet. Um, but a lot of that is already baked into the price.
0: Jason Moser, what do you got? Yeah, it sounds boring, but the company's actually pretty cool. Lincoln Electric Holdings, uh, they are the leading provider of arc welding and cutting products. So big industrial play here. They just. Break it down to welding and stuff like that. So you're basing this investment on industrial activity and and sort of the bounce back in that. But they have a nice diversified revenue stream. About 50% North America, 50% international. Of that 50% international, about 15 of that is the BRIC nations. Uh, so significant emerging. Uh, Emerging market opportunity there. Uh, you know this is just it's it's kind of a slow and steady wins the race. It's still a small company at about five six billion dollars, uh, but but there's just a tremendous global opportunity of industrial activity out there. And as that bounces back, I think that Lincoln is a very well run company and it will benefit.
2: And the ticker symbol
0: LECO. Steve, question about Lincoln Electric.
2: Are they operating here primarily or in China?
0: Uh, well, I mean, it's 50% of their of their sales come from North America, primarily uh, the U.S. But
1: where are they? are they? Are they welding here, doing welding in the U.S., or is it oh, done? Yeah, yeah okay. welding everywhere. It's all yeah. done.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they, they're on yeah, site. Yeah, they sell the welding equipment and then the consumables that go with that equipment.
2: Charlie, we've got about a minute left.
1: Uh, I'm looking at Intel, Chris. They report earnings on the 15th. And I think the market's perception of this company as a desktop Windows company, and that's just completely wrong. Uh, they are in Apple's MacBook Air. They're in Chromebooks. They're making a huge push in the mobile uh, with much faster, more efficient processors. And I think their growth over the next five or ten years is really going to surprise investors. Steve? How often should I be upgrading my computer processor? Uh, well, I'd say for a tablet or phone, probably every two or three years. That's going to do
2: it. Charlie Travers, Jason Moser, Brian Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Chris. Up next, entrepreneur and now best-selling author Seth Goldman, the founder of Honest Tea, joins me right here in studio. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Can buy me love, love, can buy me love. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Back in 1999, Honest Tea did a little over $1 million in sales, and by the time Coca-Cola bought Honest Tea in 2011, the company was doing $75 million in sales. Seth Goldman is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Honest Tea, and his new book is Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. Welcome back. Thanks, Chris. It's great to have you here again. Um, the first thing i got to ask you about this book, it is... It, in the form of a graphic novel, right? what was behind that decision <laughs> and what did the publisher say when you said, this yeah. is how we want to do the book?
4: Well, so I in uh, 2011, I, my oldest son was a senior in high school and he had officially entered senior slump. He had gotten into college and was no <laughs> longer doing homework. He was bringing home comic books. And my wife sent me up one and she says, you got to get him to you know, keep his grades up or he's going to lose his acceptance to college. And uh, at the time, I was had been reading a bunch of business books and just found them really repetitive and preachy and not that inspiring, especially the green business books, which are what we need to be inspired by. And so uh, what it would happen is I'd go upstairs, I'd be with my son, and then my wife would come up and find us both reading the comic books. And I said, wait a minute. If these comic books can draw me in, why can't we take a business story and turn it into a graphic form? And and, and the, between the tea gardens, the label design, the bottling plants, there's a lot of visual elements to our story. And, I th-
2: I think you have an untapped market here. I think if you, if you aren't already planning to go to Comic-Con next year in <laughs> San Diego, I think the publisher I've needs to I've gone to some up. of
4: the Comic-Con events. But when we went to the publisher, they responded very well because just as the beverage shelf doesn't need another beverage unless it's meaningfully different, the business bookshelves are, are full of plenty of entrepreneurial stories. But if we could find a different way to tell a story and make it more accessible – uh, they were open and receptive to it.
2: Let's talk about some of the lessons in your book because you do a wonderful job of laying out the story of honesty, the idea of the company, and how you grew. But I think for the average person, not just the average business person, but also the average investor, some of the lessons to be drawn from this are amazing. Um, one of which uh, that really struck me was the whole idea of understand your buyer. Which is not as obvious as it seems. Yeah. That seems like in business the most <laughs> obvious thing.
4: Right. But for us, we, it wasn't the end consumer we needed to sell. It was the, the, the distributor and the store manager. Because we had a, a group of consumers who were incredibly loyal and passionate about our product. But the, the distributor and the store manager often weren't going to be the folks who enjoyed a less sweet organic beverage. And so when they tried our product, they'd say, well, this isn't sweet enough or it's too expensive. And we say, well, you're not necessarily <laughs> the one who's going to buy it. And so the only way to convince them of the opportunity was to help them appreciate that there was a business opportunity. Uh, and and so when we had consumers who would request the product or if the product wasn't on the shelf, they'd go to the store and say, uh, you know, why? where's my honest tea? And that was so important in driving our growth.
2: That ties into another lesson that you touch on, which is distribution being – Maybe the most important thing yeah. in your business.
4: Well, it's ironic because we still have our business plan, uh, the original business plan at honesty.com on our website. And the plan does a wonderful job of describing the brand aspiration and, and sort of the positioning. No discussion of distribution at all. <laughs> so.
2: If I recall correctly, with the last time we talked, I don't even think the word distribution appears in that business plan, does it?
4: <laughs> I don't think it does. And there was a, this, someone wrote uh, if, if you, you know, make a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. But it's just not the case with beverages. You, you, you've got to be able not just to get to the door of the store. You need to get to the shelf. And so um, you need a distributor who can both deliver the product and merchandise it. And ultimately, beverage distributors are the the best folks suited to do that.
2: One other lesson that reminded me of some of the big technology companies in the United States and the lesson is too much money can make you stupid. Mm,
4: yeah. Well, we never had too much of that. So <laughs> <laughs> what, what we see people do is they raise a lot of money, especially entrepreneurs. They raise a lot of money, which also means giving up a lot of control. And then they'll try to, you know, make it blow it out big until before it's proven. And we knew, you know, along the way, we we made so many mistakes. And had we had more money, we would just made bigger mistakes, you know, whether the tea wasn't filtered enough or the labeling message was wrong or even the product wasn't right. And if we had spent all this money promoting a product that wasn't right, um, then it would have just been more costly. So we uh, we we made mistakes. There's no avoiding mistakes. But at least in the beginning, they were less expensive mistakes because we just had less money to spend.
2: You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Seth Goldman, co-founder of Honest Tea. His new book is Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. A lot of challenges as you were starting out and some pretty significant setbacks, one involving shards of glass in – a couple of different locations you have you're, yeah. you're working with whole foods yeah and you get reports from two different locations you've got shards of glass yeah how do you deal very, with something like that well it's
4: very scary we had a supplier who brought in defective uh packaging and uh the plant ran it and was not able to catch all the all the product and so um no fortunately no one was hurt or injured but it was scary because certainly there's the potential for that and we knew you know all you need is one bad incident um to really put the business under at that stage is such a delicate balance, and so we uh, took the proactive road. We just pulled all the product off the market, and that, that uh, as you know, financially it was a disaster. I mean, it was we lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in a company that was only doing yeah. <laughs> a few million in sales. So it was extremely, uh, you know, negative impact on the business. But in the long term, it was the right thing to do for the brand. It was the right thing to do, certainly from, from a personal safety perspective. And and in the long term, it was the right message to send to our retailers that we weren't going to be taking chances. And and as a side note, uh, a different company had the same issue at the same time, didn't pull off the product, and eventually did go out of business.
2: Let that be a lesson out there. (laughs) Um, You mentioned how when entrepreneurs are raising money, that can be a good thing, but it also means they're giving up control In 2011, Coca Cola acquires all of Honest Tea. What made you and your colleagues decide, you know what, this is worth giving up control? Because we had, you and I have talked about that before, that at a point where they were just an investor and not the majority stakeholder. You ultimately had final say. Mm-hmm. What happened in 2011 to say, "All right, well, we're going to do this deal."
4: Well, first of all, we'd been working with Coca-Cola for three years as Coke as a minority investor, and we had developed a great working relationship. We had scaled the brand. We had 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 um, dramatically increased the availability of the product, and we had also proven this model of a business based in Bethesda, Maryland, run by an entrepreneurial team, but owned by Coca-Cola in Atlanta, and. What we agreed uh, was that we would keep the the basic structure intact. And from our perspective, that worked. We were happy and Coca-Cola was happy. And then what we enabled us to do was really tap their their distribution um, capabilities to, to get the product to national uh, scale and and that 's still going on i mean but um, it 's been so exciting to feel like we 've always talked about democratizing organics. How do we make healthy organic products available not just to the natural foods channel or not just to the folks on the coasts who live in wealthy communities? How do we make it available in every state and every community and, and uh, you know beyond just the health food stores to the convenience stores to restaurants and that 's starting to happen.
2: Is Coca-Cola leaning on Honest Tea more? And let me explain what I mean by that. Because over the last decade, soda sales – and it's not just Coca-Cola. It's Pepsi as well. Mm -hmm. Soda sales in the United States have been steadily declining. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to use a baseball analogy. It it seems like maybe at the time, once upon a time, Coca-Cola looked at at Honest Tea as a relief pitcher. Mm. We just just need a couple innings a week out of you. But as soda sales decline – are they now looking at honesty and saying we need to make this a bigger part of the coca cola portfolio of beverages?
4: Well, they certainly see how the world is evolving and diets are evolving and and, and so they uh, just like any business need to be diversified and so we are you know obviously very different from a lot of the offerings they have and and so the fact that we 've uh, earned our place on the trucks and in the shelves and in their, their what they call their sets mm-hmm. it's an important reflection of of Uh, how the future was evolving for for them.
2: Last question about Coca-Cola. Is it ever awkward whether you're dealing with a customer or a distributor or maybe not a distributor, Mm -hmm. but a customer or or anyone? uh, Is there ever an awkward moment when they realize, oh, wait a minute, this product that I love, this honesty that I love so much... Is actually part of Coca-Cola, which for some people may be seen as the evil empire. Sure.
4: Well, there's always a a perceived dissonance when an organic fair trade brand is part of a large multinational. Those those just sound a little dissonant. But, um, you know, when I can explain to people about our ability to grow and just some of the numbers I look at, when Coke invested, we were in 15,000 stores. Today, we're in over 100,000 stores. Uh And when I can talk about when Coke invested, we were buying 800,000 pounds of organic ingredients. This year, we'll buy over 5 million pounds of organic ingredients that helps them appreciate that from a mission-driven perspective, uh, the impact has changed.
2: Coming up, more with Seth Goldman. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money.
0: Do the town fine if you've got the money honey I got the time
2: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money Chris Hill here in studio with Seth Goldman the founder of Honest Tea How big a part of your business are the kids drinks the juices the lemonades that yeah. sort of thing
4: Well we have a line called Honest Kids that's really focused um it's a drink pouch and yes. it has exploded. And I, uh, <laughs> we're both thrilled and still surprised by how, not just how it's now over 30% of our total business wow, and it's growing in over 30% a year while the category itself is shrinking. So to me, it's a real reflection of, um, it, it, there's no question it's premium. I mean, it's uh, it's more expensive than the other products out there, but it is also dramatically different calorie-wise. It's 40 calories versus most of them at 100 calories, yep. and so it is. Um, we call it it's not the sweet spot. It's the just a tad sweet spot. Right. And and um, what's so interesting about Honest Kids, if you were to do a, a market test, a folk you know a taste test with it, it we would lose. Because any kid is going to choose a sweeter drink. But in a lunchbox, there's exactly <laughs> it's, one, it's option. One, it's one option. There's one option, and kids get comfortable with it.
2: You can have this drink, or you can go thirsty. <laughs> I've had that conversation with my kids.
4: Now, uh, uh,
2: do you have someone working in the labs on the pouch technology? Because I, And I may be alone as a parent here, but I, I have the darndest time trying to actually puncture the yeah, thing with the straw. It, it is Sometimes a, I pull out a meat thermometer, which is not the best thing to do in oh, front of my that's kids.
4: that's a good suggestion. <laughs> It's very frustrating. It is a um it's the it's the best package except or the worst package except for all the others. So right. it's very environmentally efficient and that's why we've stuck with it, but um uh, we are working to th- find ways to make it more user friendly or more kid friendly or in this case often more teacher friendly because it 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 is it's a challenge. Uh,
2: we've seen plenty of companies go public this year, more this year, uh, since any time since, I think, 2007. Um, And when you look at, and maybe maybe it's not you, maybe it's one of your colleagues, do any of you ever look at, for example, a Noodles & Company Going public, day one, the, the stock price shoots to the moon, and you think, ah, oh, we should have held out. We should have um, gone
4: public. Not for a second. Really? Uh, yeah, but just to look, look at some of the parallels. So, back in 2007, when we were growing, um, but also faced the decision of whether to sell, Jones Soda Company was yeah. at a market cap of over $750 million, and but they didn't have access to distribution. Now, their market cap is under 30 million. Um, So, for me, it's a great reflection. And I've been on boards of some companies that have just sold, and it was the public markets can do a lot. But in the beverage distribution world, the distribution is so key. And and just having money in the bank doesn't get you more access to to customers.
2: What is the next big thing for honesty? What is the Mm -hmm. thing that you are working on? Yeah that you're particularly excited about? Well,
4: it's, it's the expansion. I mean, we're, we'll do over $100 million in sales this year, and that's nice. Uh, it's, it's not anything to shake a stick at, but we need to think about how we get into more mainstream, not just channels, but mindsets. How do we get more people to adopt our product and our approach to food and to nature? And so some of the ways we're doing that is uh, we're actually now in a conversation with a national restaurant chain, uh, one of the five largest in the in the country, to look at having honest tea be a core part of their their daily offerings, not wow. just the special or the orga- during organic harvest month. It's you know every day. Wow! Um, so that's just e- extremely exciting for us. And then and then whether it's a marketing campaign or messaging, how do we make it more accessible? And so those are the kind of things we're working on.
2: You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Seth Goldman, co-founder of Honest Tea. His new book is Mission in a Bottle: The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. Uh, I- this might anger some of your uh, colleagues at Coca-Cola, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, Steve Ballmer uh, from Microsoft has been in the news recently. He will step down as CEO at some point mm-hmm. over the next 12 months. And one of the names being floated as a potential replacement is Alan Mulally, the CEO at Ford. Mm-hmm. So that got me thinking. If John Mackey at Whole Foods picks up the phone and calls you, and, or, or Howard Schultz at a Starbucks and says, Seth... I'm thinking about uh, winding down my time here. I've done all that I want to accomplish at Whole Foods and or Starbucks and I'm thinking about who's going to sit in the chair when <laughs> I'm gone. Are you taking a call? Are you taking a call from <laughs> well, John that's, Mackey that's or that's Howard very
4: Schultz? It's to 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 put it that way. I I got to say I I'm so I'm still excited. I know this is, sounds weird cuz I've been doing this for more than 15 years, but I still feel like this is the mission. I uh, you know, been destined to, to build. And, and as much as we're over $100 million, the goal is to get this to a billion. So I still feel like there's a lot of unfinished work. You know, that said, I, I, um, if anything, I, I think my – not that I've contemplated it, but my next phase may be more in the public sector. You know, thinking about how, how can I be, continue to be an advocate for this approach to uh, a broader you know, societal change.
2: Now, in a previous life, you were involved in investing, Uh, with Calvert. Your company seems to fit perfectly in the universe of uh, what some in the investing world Think of as socially responsible investing. Mm-hmm. What is your take on socially responsible investing? Well,
4: what's interesting, so you know, a company like ours actually wouldn't normally meet Calvert's criteria in the sense, not from the mission perspective, just because we weren't publicly traded. So Calvert did have a small portfolio where they would invest in what we would call either the high impact investments or, or the you know, special equity investments. Uh, but what's what I found um, meaningful in, in the mutual funds, the public markets, is being able to give consumers and empower them to to be able to understand how their money is being invested. And so one of the things I worked on at, at uh, Calvert, and actually still focus on with honesty, is making sure my retirement money is, I have a choice. And I don't if I don't want to invest in tobacco stocks, don't put my money in a mutual fund that's going to invest in tobacco stocks. So I think this is, a, you know, choice and transparency are really important. And so, you know, one of the issues I've had with Coca-Cola, now that our 401k is moving into Coca-Cola, is it says, I want to make sure they have... Those options. right? Uh, a lot of times that's just not something employers think about. Um, so I think it's important as a choice. Uh, as an investment strategy, I'm not going to try to argue that it's going to deliver better returns. Uh, I'm confident it can deliver market returns. Um, I think in the long term, depends how, how long term you phrase it, but I think in the long term you're, uh, you're investing in companies that have a more forward-looking uh, understanding of their um, responsibilities and, and commitment to the public, pu- to the public welfare. So I think they'll they'll be better bets over the long term.
2: Now, last question. You, even before that, uh, once upon a time you were a wrestler. You, 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 you wrote something <laughs> very bad. Wrestler. You wrote something earlier this year, uh, a, a blog post about wrestling. Yeah. Any takeaways for oh, investors sure. ab- well, about wrestling? For and-
4: me, the, rel- the, the reference was to the fact that as an entrepreneur, I've had to deal with so much defeat and so many setbacks. Um, the only one of the best preparations I had was you know, um, being able to, to bounce back and to be resilient. And I think today, if we look at the way our kids are being raised with helicopter parents and, you know, sort of being there to give them an award, no matter how good or bad they are, it's like, you know what? Kids need to experience failure. Everyone needs to experience failure. Not that it's, I should wish it on anybody, but you can't really understand what success means and why it's important until you've, you know, looked up, (laughs) you've been on the mat and you're you're down for the, (laughs) literally down for the count um, and found a way to fight, fight off your back. And um, you know, as a, as a culture, I worry about our, our ability to develop uh, a resilient entrepreneurial um, group of people uh, because we just haven't let them be, get challenged and experience defeat.
2: The book is Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. It is already a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Seth Goldman, thanks so much for being here again. It's great to be with you, Chris. You know, we kicked off this week's show talking about the government shutdown. At the center of that dispute is Obamacare. We've got a special free report entitled, Everything You Need to Know About Obamacare. It's got what it means for your taxes, the impact on your portfolio, why hospital stocks are the big winners, what it means for health insurers, big pharma, and a host of other industries. And you can get this free report simply by dropping us an email, Obamacare at fool.com. That's Obamacare, all one word, at fool.com. Just in the few seconds we have left, Steve Broido, my man on the other side of the glass. The government shutdown, has it affected you at all? I know a lot of people in this area, obviously it's their jobs, but for for people who aren't in the federal government, it's it's not being able to go to national parks. My
1: wife works for the federal government, so yes, very much so, and how.
2: (laughs) I'm sorry about that, man. I hope it ends soon.
1: Me too. (laughs) All right. So does our family.
2: (laughs) That is going to do it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Gail Año Nuevo. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.